One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're a baby, nobody asks for your permission before you receive medical treatment But what if that treatment changed your life forever? What if it decided whether you were a man or a woman? What if you never even knew you'd been operated on? I knew I was somehow different. I didn't know what it was. And it made me very, very angry that this secret had been kept. For decades, Children who were born intersex have been operated on without their consent and often without being told about it when they were older. Now, under new NHS draft proposals, those surgeries could be coming to an end. Children in the UK have had operations from around the age of six months. That might include surgeries on their genitals, their reproductive organs or both. If there's no evidence that these surgeries were beneficial before a child can consent, then why are we doing them? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, consent, shame and a lifetime of secrets... Is it time to end surgery on intersex kids? I'm Sarah Gillingham. I am now in my 50s and I was born with variations in sex characteristics, which we also call intersex traits. It's really hard to know how many people are born intersex in the UK every year. I asked the Department of Health and NHS England, but they don't have figures. The National Audit Office says it's difficult to measure because babies are very rarely registered as intersex on their birth certificates. By the time parents register a birth, they've usually decided which gender they want their baby to be. But being intersex, in some form, isn't as rare as you'd think. The UN estimates that up to 1.7% of the population could be classified as having intersex traits It's a controversial statistic, as it includes not only people who were born with what medics call ambiguous genitalia, where a baby isn't clearly male or female, and their genitalia may resemble both. It also includes people for whom the difference may be less obvious. They may have unexpected reproductive organs, for example, like a boy who's born with a uterus. The UN's figure goes further as it's also taken into account people for whom the difference is in the balance of their hormones. Being intersex is rarely talked about. It's a subject that's been shrouded in such secrecy that not even the government knows how many people in Britain are born intersex every year. And many of those who are 
like Sarah, aren't told about it, even when they're adults. It wasn't until 10 years ago I actually found out. So what happened? It's like any family secret. It sometimes can cause tensions. And my relationships with my parents, you know, went up and down during the years, probably not unlike many people. And I had one particularly difficult Christmas and I visited my brother and my sister-in-law on the way home because my parents were up in the Yorkshire Dales and I live on the Surrey-Hampshire border. I sat down with my sister-in-law who was also upset because I had, you know, not the best Christmas. And she said, there's something I think you need to know. And it was then she asked what I knew about the operations I had. So I had operations when I was two. And then I had further operations when I was 11. I still have memories of actually of those surgeries and obviously I knew what parts of my anatomy, if you like, they were operating on. But I was always told the reason for those surgeries was that I was born premature. So we had, I had that chat with my sister-in-law and she says, well, I think you need to go and get your medical records. So there was part of me knowing there was a secret and I had heard about variations in sex characteristics and there was always that question in the back of my mind whether that was the real story if you like. So I went to the GP as soon as they were open after Christmas and you know just filled in a form paid me money to ask for a copy of my medical records and I picked them up several days later from reception. I basically took them out in an envelope and sat in the back of my car. I had a big four-wheel drive and a and a big, big dog that I was about to take for a walk. So I was literally sat in the boot, reading through my medical records. In one hand with my records and my other arm was around the dog. And... You know, my first feelings, really, when I saw it, there was a lot of terms in there I just didn't understand. There's a lot of medical terms. But I understood enough. And it made me very, very angry that this secret had been kept, to me, unnecessarily. And because it had impacted my relationships over the years. You know, having a family secret for that long does cause problems. I'm Faye Kirkland. I work as an investigative journalist, but I also work as a family doctor, as a GP. That's quite a mix. <laughs> quite a mix, yes. <laughs> Been doing both for about more than five years now. Faye first met Sarah a few years ago whilst she was investigating how the medical world dealt with intersex issues. Over the years, she's told me that she just felt something wasn't quite right. She'd had a a number of operations as a child where she wasn't really given an explanation as to 
what the operations were for. She'd had multiple surgeries and she'd had sort of a number of issues growing up where she'd felt quite anxious. She felt something wasn't right, but but no one had ever had ever told her why. And she had this feeling that the family, her, her extended family knew what the situation was, but no one had ever told her. And she wasn't given any support or any explanation. She was just handed her set of medical notes. Sarah found out she had progestin-induced virilization. Her mother had been prescribed a form of progestin, a drug which was supposed to lower the risk of having a miscarriage, but which was known, even at the time, to cause female fetuses to develop more like males. The result is an intersex baby with what doctors call ambiguous genitalia, so it shows physical traits that are both male and female. And typically what happens is children in the UK have had operations from around the age of six months of age, so that might include surgeries on their genitals, their reproductive organs or both. And it was often parents who were seeking these operations to alter their child's um, genitals appearance and make them more look like the sex they're raising the child as. And other operations um, were actually because there might be an increased risk of cancer. And how common is is the condition? The NHS in England estimates that approximately 150 children are born each year with a difference in their sex development. And they think that around 40 to 50 operations take place each year. But there is, I would say, a lot of discussion within the community about what gets included in the definition of intersex. And so you'll see that there are some estimates of intersex traits by the United Nations being as common as 1.7% of the population. You say it wasn't completely a surprise when you found out? I mean, had you had an inkling growing up, did you feel like there was something different? Yes. So, you know, this is the thing I say really to parents who are thinking about surgery on their kids. It doesn't fix the problem. It, You know, if you want to perceive it's a problem. Because, you know, you're different. I knew I was somehow different. I didn't know what it was. And the result of knowing I was different made me a very introverted child. I wasn't somebody who socialised in the way most little girls did. I was happier just being on my own, hanging out in woods, looking at birds and foxes, rather than building friendships. And it was only really in the days of, I don't know, it must have been about in my 30s, the internet was out there. Society was society's changed. It's a lot more open than what it was. And that was probably where I first heard it when I was a mature student, actually, at, a, at university. Mm. And that really pointed me in the direction I got a couple of medical books, actually, at that point. Just learning generally about women's health, actually. But there was chapters in that about it. That was probably the start of me thinking, oh, I wonder. Really? It made me question the story I was told. I knew I wasn't told the whole story because quite... I had a few medical issues over the years and I would go to the GP and the GP would say, do you know what your surgeries were? 
And my answer would be, well, no. And the GPs would come back, oh, perhaps you should go and ask your parents. So even though the GPs knew, they never told me. And of course, my parents' response was the one they were told to tell me (laughs) by the doctors was, you don't need to worry about it because it's all okay now and it's not affecting your health. So you don't need to know. So it's like this continuous circle between the GPs and my parents. I mean, have you been, have you felt like you've been able to sort of find some kind of peace with yourself and with your family now that you know? Yeah. So, you know, the, my parents have passed away now in recent years. Were you able to talk about it before they did? Not really. You know, it was a lifelong secret and it was just too difficult for everybody. But everybody knowing, in a sense, lifted a weight. I think a secret creates a weight on everybody. It wasn't just me, it was also my parents yeah. and my brother. And it lifted that. So even though we didn't speak about it, because it was too difficult and too painful for them, as well as me, it opened up channels in other ways, if you like. There's a little bit of me thinking, well, I can't just sit here peacefully knowing that others are potentially still going through exactly what I did so many years later. So the way I deal with that is actually talking about it, just to raise awareness and letting children and families know there's plenty of us out there who have walked the same steps, if you like. Sarah and others like her have been campaigning for changes for years, and now it seems the medical establishment is listening. Dr Faye Kirkland will explain the latest proposals in just a moment. But if you'd like to access more remarkable stories every day, then do subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Join today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, you've recently been reporting on some draft proposals by NHS England to change the guidance on surgeries for intersex children. What do the documents say? Well, they have reviewed the evidence for the operation, so both on children's genitals and children's reproductive organs. And this document is looking at whether the NHS should pay for these operations to still go ahead. And they conclude that there is not enough evidence to make this treatment available at this time. And I have to say, I think that's incredibly striking, given that these operations have been going on in England for decades. And they say that the treatment should not be routinely available until the individual is able to consent for themselves. So basically, in the future, it would be up to people who were intersex when they reached a certain age to decide what they wanted done. Absolutely. Unless there was a significant risk of cancer or there was an emergency that meant that, for example, you know, a child couldn't pass a urine or was in severe pain. But otherwise, yes, it would be up until when the individual was old enough to make a decision for themselves. Now, a source sent you those documents. What was your reaction when you first saw them? I don't think you could underestimate what's a huge step forward, those within the intersex community and those who've been advocating for this for years. It's, it's, you know, it's a huge step forwards, and people have described it to me as, be, as feeling very emotional, feeling very proud. But it is a huge step change, and I, and I think it's the issue of surgery, of genital surgery in children before they can consent for themselves in this group has been increasingly divisive in the medical profession and has been for a number of years. And I and I think that that's because the people who've had these operations as children who are now adults have become very vocal in expressing their dissatisfaction with the surgery that they had as children. And I spoke to a professor at Cambridge University who's, who said to me, you know, as doctors, we actively told parents not to tell the children about their diagnoses and we didn't tell the children about their diagnoses and charities told me that they had examples of this happening up until 2012 in the UK so only eight years ago. God as recently as that? As recently as that and speaking to psychologists who've seen patients who've had these operations and are now adults, they talk about needing multiple operations, often have scarring, sensation loss. And this is normally on the background of parents being told that their children would just need a one-off operation to make their children sort of normal in quotes. That's meant that for some children, they've often grown up and been quite traumatised. Parents often have felt very guilty about making a decision which they genuinely believed was in their child's best interest, but then 
their children have often been very unhappy about their childhood surgery and that's caused very fractious family relationships. So I think, you know, this guidance has come about, this draft guidance, in the context of, of people talking about their unhappiness about their childhood surgery and this growing international pressure for things to change. And when you when you wrote the story, all those people who had been campaigning, and I know you've spoken to many over the years, but how did they respond? What was the reaction? I think they felt incredibly emotional that their voices had been heard. I do think that there are sort of several unanswered questions by the draft proposal. So I think people think, well, if operations aren't going to take place what sort of support will there be for children growing up? What sort of psychological support for children and their families? And that they feel that there needs to be much more investment in that so that people are cared for. I think there is a fundamental question around consent. And people have said to me there needs to be a lot more detail and understanding about what informed consent would, would look like. And I also think that there is a question about... You know, how many more people are there like Sarah who don't know about their historic diagnosis? And if you're saying that there is no evidence for these surgeries, but we've been doing them for decades in the UK, what happens to people who might not know that that had happened to them? I mean, what impact do you think these proposals will have on on children and on their parents? In terms of the children, it's a win, as far as I'm concerned. And But it is important, and I can't stress it enough, that the, there is the right care there for the children and the family in terms of supporting them in their early years. In terms of the parents, I'm sure some parents will have some anxiety about it because they still... There'll be many parents think that, in some senses, surgery is the answer. Yeah. And what I'm saying is surgery isn't the answer. And I'm not the only one saying it. I've heard my story from other people. And there's plenty of adults out there, like myself, who've been through it, who have had to live with the consequences of those surgeries. It's something that I've been asking questions about for a number of years. I've asked the Royal College of GPs for several years about whether they think that doctors should now go through their their group of patients. You, know, you can search for diagnosis on a computer and reach out to people who might have this diagnosis and, and be unaware. But they've said to me today that they don't think that the doctors should be proactively doing that. But they do think that if patients come in and they're consulting about a medical problem which might be linked to being intersex and the patient is unaware, the doctors should be having those discussions with patients and making sure they have the appropriate support and aftercare. I mean, take us back to how this system has operated in in the past. Why did doctors tend to operate on, on children? What was the thinking? And when I spoke to this professor at Cambridge, Professor Ian Hughes, a number of years ago, he told me that at the time there'd been a couple of examples where patients had been so upset by their diagnosis that they'd taken their own lives. And doctors at that point thought that it was in the child's best interest never to know and that parents were advised that it would be difficult 
for children and adolescents to understand their diagnosis and it was much better if they didn't know. So it was this very paternalistic view of doctors knowing best and yeah. as time has gone on, obviously, the, the understanding around that and and the views of the medical profession have changed and children have been more and more involved in their decisions and tried to be given information in an age-appropriate way. In a way, does this sort of show us that there's a wider you know, societal move going on? I think so. I think that view that parents can consent on behalf of their children is a concept which, if it's not a medical emergency, then why are we doing these operations? And there is absolutely a, a importance to make sure that children, when these operations are going to have a life, potentially lifelong impacts on children going forwards, that they're able to make the decision themselves. If there's no evidence that these um, surgeries were beneficial before a child can consent, then why are we doing them? How does the, the position here in Britain, how does it compare to the rest of the world? Is everybody moving in the same direction? So Malta was the first country to ban, um, was one of the first countries to ban intersex surgery in 2015. And they've, they've made that a ban, whereas in England, this would be the NHS is no longer going to pay for surgery if this does go ahead in England. So that's interesting. So that's a slightly different position. And so I, I suppose there is also a worry for some about whether these operations will still go ahead in the private sector if, if they're not going to be paid for on the NHS. Although I, I do think that that is unlikely to happen just because doctors are meant to work to the latest available evidence and if the review shows there is no evidence of these surgeries I think it's unlikely then that doctors are going to perform them privately although that is a concern but another concern that's brought to me is is whether parents will take their children abroad because it's something that hasn't been thought about in lots of other countries. And it is I mean it's still such a complicated issue I mean what are sort of the pros and cons of of this big change who you, you talked about a lot of the people who are really welcoming it. Why Why do they think it's so significant? I think, as Sarah will say to you, you know, many of this these surgeries were done because parents and, and doctors thought that by operating that the, the psychological issues around intersex would go away. But as one charity, DSD Family, said to me, you know, the thought of this surgery was really to try and, and make problems go away, but the problems never went away. But there are a number of parents' organisations, I understand, that are concerned about the guidance and feel that parents should still have the right to be able to consent for their children, even if these operations aren't medically needed because there's a medical emergency and feel that parents should still be able to consent on their child's behalf. Because there, there must be some people who are quite worried about the change too because you can sort of see from the perspective of a parent that if you've got a baby who is intersex you know you probably don't want them to have to go through a portion of their life you know feeling the confusion of that before they can decide to have an operation. Yeah. You know you, you, there's, there's just there's no simple answer about which is more scarring. Absolutely. And you know, the sorts of things that people said to me is, you know, when the child's young, how do you explain that maybe to other parents? For example, when you're taking the child to nursery or they're going to school, and does that mean that the child is more likely to be bullied? But actually, if you speak to people like Sarah, she'll say, well, you know, even though I had the operation, that didn't stop me being bullied because I felt fundamentally different. 
And there are sort of so many factors. You know, there's the psychological side of of growing up and and having to take a decision, but also having to work out your identity through that. But I suppose also physically, I mean, just from a medical perspective, does it make a difference if you have the surgery earlier or is it better or worse to do it after puberty? There are so many different conditions. That's a very, very difficult question to answer, to be honest, because there are so many variations. And I think that that argument was used by surgeons for a long time, that it's easier to do the operations when the children are younger but then you have to balance that against the sort of psychological factors that a child may have not wanted that operation in the first place and they might need further operations depending on the condition as they grow. So what tended to happen in the 1990s is that when adults complained about their childhood surgery, the surgeons would just adapt the technique and so that they would try and change the way that they did the operations so that they might be able to preserve some more of the nerves so that they could try and preserve feeling or try and change their technique so that there was less scarring and these different surgeries the way the operations were done were revised over a number of years but there wasn't that bigger step back thinking do we need to do these operations as a whole until now I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it does feel like it it reflects so much more about the changes in society too, because I imagine for parents, it would have been sort of such a terrifying thing to think a a child would have to grow up with a confusion of all of that. Maybe we're just more accepting about those things now. Speaking to Sarah, I think that's absolutely right. I think the invention of the internet, people being able to share their stories, people talking more about gender and these very personal stories has allowed people to talk about this in a way which probably wasn't possible 10, 20 years ago. And just finally, it still isn't a subject which is talked about that much. You know, it is changing, but it's still not, you know, a lot of people don't really know very much about it. If you were giving advice, I mean, firstly, to somebody who was intersex, what would you say to them? To a kid who who was trying to understand their condition? In some ways, I don't think there is much advice I give them now other than to say you can live a full, happy life like any other person. Like, that's my experience now of somebody who's been through an awful lot and and it was dealt with very, very badly. Here I am living in a nice house, in a good job, in a great relationship that there's no reason why you can't flourish alongside everybody else. And what advice would you give to parents who who have children who are intersex? I mean, I know it's not really a conversation you managed to have with your own parents, but you know, what do you wish had happened to you as a child? What 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 sort of support would have been helpful? What would be helpful is parents who were first still considering surgery is just go and talk to some of those adults like myself who have had those surgeries, and think again. I would say just look to the younger generations and how they deal with difference, because, you know, society is changing and there's no need to have that anxiety. And there'll be a few bumps in the road, but everything, you know, get the support, talk to friends, talk to family, talk to your GPs and... You'll get through it and you'll look back at it in time and and will wonder why it was so hard, perhaps. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, GP and journalist Dr Faye Kirkland and Sarah Gillingham, who works with people in the NHS and the Church of England to raise awareness about variations in sex characteristics. The producer today was Asir Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. If you can, please do leave us a review. We read them all. And if there's a story you think we should be covering, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.